Welcome to Odo Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. This is episode 14 The History of Otolaryngology. My guest today is Brickell Kemp. She is a third-year medical student at the Louisiana State University in New Orleans. When I first released my podcast, she sent me an email thanking me for publishing it and asked if she could help with any future episodes. Knowing free labor when I see it, I asked her to put together content for a history of otolaryngology episode, which I thought would be interesting to listeners. Little did she know that my plan was to interview her about what she uncovered. Welcome to the show, Brickell. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I am originally from Louisiana. I grew up in a small town outside of New Orleans called Mandeville. And I really didn't grow a true appreciation for New Orleans until I went to college here at Tulane University. And while at Tulane, I not only grew to love the city, but then got an education along the way got a degree in neuroscience as well as public health. And that really acted as a springboard for not only medical school, but I'm also pursuing a master's of public health now, focusing on health policy and systems management so that I can better understand not only my patients, but how the healthcare system affects the care and the quality of care that they receive. That's great. I'm pursuing my third year of med school, as you said. Yeah. All right. So how'd you find out about the podcast? So I listen to a lot of podcasts, especially with third year that I have to drive more and, you know, work in a hospital and everything. But I found your podcast after I'd finished my surgical subspecialty in otolaryngology because I have some awesome mentors here but I was really looking for different insights and opinions on the field and just kind of to learn more about the field and what it had to offer. And your podcast was exactly that. Yeah. Well, great. I'm glad it helped you a little bit. Um, So are you interested in oil oncology? Are you going to apply next year? I'm definitely interested. It's only the more I learn, the more I'm interested in it. That's for sure. Great. Well, I look forward to looking at your application. (laughs) No pressure, no pressure. What do you like about otolaryngology? I think what's been said on this podcast before has stated it really eloquently, but I really love that there's a diverse set of kind of pathologies, but also a diverse set of patients in the field. So it's everything from, you know, seemingly simple tubes for little kids to really complex malignant cancers with neck dissections, but then something else I really think is unique and special about otolaryngology is how there's a huge social aspect to the patient population. So the behaviors that people have in their personal lives, like smoking, alcohol consumption, even sexual behaviors really ends up reflecting their pathology and some of their outcomes, even when they come into otolaryngologist's office. And I think that that's unique and an interesting challenge that otolaryngologists are faced with. Yeah. 
the podcast today is about the history of otolaryngology, which you were kind enough to do some research on. So let's talk about the history of otolaryngology. For example, how about what does otolaryngology mean? The word itself is a mouthful, but really all comes from Greek origins. And it's broken down pretty simply. Odo is ous, meaning ear. And then laryngo is larynx, meaning of the throat or the larynx. And then logi from logia or the study of. So the study of the ear, throat, and larynx for the most part. And it was first used in 1897. And that same year, the words amino acid, push-up, and woozy were first used as well. <laughs> nice. Okay. So before 19-something, 1970-something, um, otolaryngology and ophthalmology were together, uh, and it was H-E-E-N-T. So what happened? How did that progress? So, yeah, in 1979, that was like the official kind of split in the books, if you will, of ophthalmology and otolaryngology. And it really happened out of necessity more than anything because both fields were growing so much that they actually were having difficulty finding meeting places for that large of a group to meet for the academy. And after 1979, the American Academy of Otolaryngology changed its name to what we now know as the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. Yeah. And they have their annual meetings every year, usually September or October timeframe. I can imagine, I mean, those meetings are pretty darn large. There's a huge international population that also comes. So, you know, I can imagine that it would be tough to find meeting space at this yeah. point. Yeah. Plus, it's also nice not to have to also learn everything about the eye because the eye is <laughs> complicated on its own. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about the Academy a little bit more. So tell me more about the Academy's history. The Academy being kind of the formal body for the education standpoint of laryngology really started thanks to a doctor named Dr. Hal Foster in 1896. He was from Kansas City, Missouri, and he really wanted kind of a home base for his region. So he sent out over 500 invitations just to random people in the field and in the field being ophthalmologists, otolaryngologists, and everyone kind of that fell under those umbrellas. And by 1903, he had enough of the group of 185 members and had what was then called the Academy of Ophthalmology and Otolaryngology. And then a few years later, it became the largest specialty society in the United States. So by 1907, they had over 400 members and they were the biggest one in existence. Nice. And then the American Board of Otolaryngology is a separate society. So that has to do with credentialing. You have to pass your boards to be board certified. So tell me about that one. So that's pretty interesting because it really, the history of the American Board of Otolaryngology really outlines the history of specialization in America in general. So in the early 1900s, the idea of specializing was kind of just a general term. It wasn't really a formal recognition or formal certification. And it was starting to become a problem for not only patients, but also physicians, because really anyone could claim they were specialists in any given field, but there wasn't much weight behind that. So it actually wasn't until the 
Triological Society, which is still in existence today, which is made up of otologists, laryngologists, and rhinologists, they kind of made this proposal or proclamation for a standardized postgraduate period of medical education. So to give a little more context, this is around 1910 is when the Flexner Report came out, which the Flexner Report was this major influential report that dramatically changed medical education as we know it today. However, that report really focused on undergraduate medical education, so just medical school. But what the Trilogical Society really wanted was some formalization of the so-called specialists in this era. So really specializing is somewhat of a recent phenomena that I wouldn't think that it had started that recently, but I thought that was pretty interesting. So in 1912, the Trilogical Society asked for this formal proposal for creating standardized postgraduate medical education. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, the academy, so I'm going to refer to it as the academy from here on out, the Academy of Ophthalmology and Otolaryngology at this point, the academy established two committees, one for ophthalmology and one for otolaryngology, to really kind of develop an action plan for how they were going to create specialties at this point. Yeah, because and, the Lexner report was more medical school, like you said, and so they wanted to have a graduate medical education credentialing body as well. Exactly. Okay. So from that point, the ophthalmology arm of it kind of decided to focus on only the certification aspect, which allowed them to kind of have a faster timeline than the otolaryngology arm of it. And so by 1917, the ophthalmologists had a certification exam already in place, and they were the first specialty to have a board examination, which was huge and under the big body of the academy at that time. And so that pressured the otolaryngology committee at the time to really not only get that certification out, but also this accreditation portion for the residencies. So from that, they were able to, it was not without resistance, though, they were able to get the medical directors of these different training programs to really agree to kind of a set form of recommended curriculum that everyone would follow from that point forward. So at that point in time, in 1921, they decided it was a three-year minimum training requirement to become an otolaryngologist. And then from that point, they created their certification exam in 1924, which then fully established the American Board of Otolaryngology. So at this point in time, we have not only a certification for official otolaryngologists, but then also an accreditation process for any group that wanted to train otolaryngologists. Okay. And then it sounds like the format of that test really hasn't changed very much over the years. Because even originally, right, it was a oral exam and a written exam? Yeah. So originally it was. It's kind of interesting, though, because they had a practical portion of the oral exam where they brought in real patients with conditions that needed to be treated. And you kind of just had to have your hand at it. And they decided if that was a decent enough job. But luckily, we've refined that process in the last decades. So by the 1970s, that was kind of long gone. But previously, it was practical portion, the oral exam, and then a written histopathology exam where they used, you know, only microscopes since computers didn't exist. Wow. Yeah, that sounds intense, actually. 
So then the residencies, when were they accredited? So the residencies were accredited by the American Board of Otolaryngology up until 1953, really. But what they had to do was follow the recommendations that they had set forth after that proposal was set by the Trilogical Society. Okay. And then after that, the ACGME stepped in and started regulating the residency programs. Yes, exactly. What we now know today. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have expected that there was there would have been a set curriculum even 120 years ago, basically. Because even medical schools, the curriculums weren't set that early, right? So you would apprentice yourself to some physician and in the medical school, you would learn your anatomy um, with the body snatchers uh, getting cadavers because that was also <laughs> taboo at that point. And then you would basically just follow a practicing physician around, but it wasn't it wasn't quite the same. Right. And it's incredible too, because we even talked about just the word otolaryngology not being published or documented until, you know, 122 years ago, but then pretty rapidly all of this other, all these other developments really came to be pretty quick. Yeah. Well, and then not, that's not even to mention, you know, the technology aspect, right? Like you said, so we have scopes, we have, you know, the microscopes, many more things that we can just do to see into the dark crevices of the head and neck. Yes, definitely. And that's, you know, each of those tools kind of has their own history for sure. But I think some of the more interesting ones, like the tympanostomy tube, the first meringotomy was completed in 1649, which is forever ago to me. But then decades later, they came up with the first tympanostomy tube that was made of gold which can you imagine putting gold in like little kids' ears today? How (laughs) wild that would be. But then people kind of used different materials like rubber and other metallics. And then it wasn't until 1954 that the first tympanostomy tube was inserted by Dr. Armstrong in America. And he used a vinyl tube, which was kind of a huge deal because it really was the reintroduction of tubes in America today. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I see patients that are older than that, who had a lot of ear infections, they didn't have that ability. And so they have the sequelae of the chronic ears with the retraction pockets and things like that. Whereas after that, the use of tubes became much more widespread, clearly. And so it's it's an interesting dichotomy, which we still see because there's a significant proportion of patients that were kids before 1954. Right. Yeah. History repeats itself even with the use and reuse of reinvented tools. Yeah. So, you know, originally we also relied on head mirrors, right? But then that changed into headlamps, you know, battery powered headlamps, of course, but also laryngoscopy, flexible laryngoscopes and nasal endoscopes, which allow us to see a lot better. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Starting kind of just chronologically with the head mirror, the first real users of that were otologists. Otologists were kind of famous for having handheld concave mirrors. So it was a mirror with a small central perforation that you could see through that kind of manipulated the light. And then from that, they started to wear them on their heads on a headband. And then, as you said, after that, kind of what we now see as the headlamp makes the most sense for our current use, because luckily we have other ways to see like the laryngoscope. 
and the laryngoscopes had their own kind of evolution too from you know just a camera on the end of a bronchoscope like a rigid bronchoscope to what we now know as like a flexible laryngoscope it was really developed by Hopkins and oddly enough the same year as Dr. Armstrong with the tympanostomy tubes in 1954 and that was just a huge you know marker of a new era that allowed for otolaryngologists to actually visualize the entirety of the anatomy of the head and neck, really. Yeah. So what are some of the main figures in otolaryngology over the years that really contributed to this development? There are quite a few, but definitely, since we were just talking about the laryngoscope, there's Chevalier Jackson, who was the father of endoscopy in the early years and he was really famous for removing objects from foreign objects from patients' throats. And he actually has a whole exhibit at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia with over 2,000 odd objects that he extracted from all kinds of patients, including things like paper clips and a string and thumbtacks and buttons and honestly anything you can think of. It's really interesting and I'd love to go sometime. So I did school in Philadelphia, so I actually went there. Um, actually, funny story, one of my first dates with my now husband was at the Mütter Museum, which is how we really knew that it was love because, you know, we both shared a passion for seeing foreign bodies extracted from different crevices. <laughs> wow, that is so cute. That's awesome. What a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to go. But he, I mean, so as you saw for yourself, he really was a pioneer in not only extracting them, but also keeping people alive. So he had a survival rate of 95% from extraction of those objects, which was insane for the time. But then additionally, he did some policy work, which is, I think, pretty cool because he really lobbied for the Caustic Poison Act, which is the act that established that there needed to be labels on caustic chemicals and other household products like appliances and toys that children could ingest and either kill them or just cause injury to their anatomy. And that is still an act today, but he worked with the Federal Drug Administration to really get that spearheaded, which is pretty neat. Yeah. So how about others that contributed to our field? I'm sure many have heard of Meniere's disease if you're listening to this podcast, but if you ever wondered who is recognized for the syndrome, it's Prosper Meniere was a French physician that was the first doctor to really recognize that it was a condition not of the cerebrum, but rather of the inner ear. So prior to his research and his work, people actually thought it was a condition or vertigo was a condition closer to like seizures or something epileptiform going on in your brain. And he was kind of the first to even just propose. It wasn't even that he was completely sure of it, but he had a theory that since it was kind of a benign condition and that the traditional methods of curing disease weren't really effective for vertigo, that it might be a condition of the inner ear rather than the brain itself. Nice. And if you've ever wondered who the first woman to ever specialize in otolaryngology was, it was Dr. Alice Bryant. And not only was she the first otolaryngologist, female otolaryngologist, but she was one of the first two women to be admitted to the American College of Surgeons back in 1940. And she's also attributed for a couple of nifty tools like the nasal polyp hook and tonsils and 
Nice. Yeah. I'm sure that there's some repository at the Smithsonian or some other museum where they have all these tools that we don't use anymore, <laughs> like the tonsil tenaculum and the nasal polyp book. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I think there's actually been some in my medical school okay. in the hallways because we have, you know, like old speculums and whatnot that really yeah. freak out some people before they even get into school. <laughs> nice. All right. And then how about Dr. Cummings? Let's talk about him a little bit. Yeah. So Dr. Cummings, who is famous for his text, Cummings Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery. He has quite an impressive resume, but he first published that text in 1985, and it's still heavily used today. And at the time that it was published, he was director of Johns Hopkins Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery. And before that, he actually served as president of the academy that we were talking about earlier, as well as president of many other societies. And he's also co-authored a couple of surgical atlases and really has contributed a lot to different departments that he's been the head of. And he's also served on the residency review committee. So he's kind of dipped into quite a few of the different things that we talked about today but he currently serves as the chairman of hospital staff at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Yeah, and, you know, that's the textbook that a lot of otolaryngology residents read, you know, as as much as residents these days read textbooks, because I think that we're going away from that and more, you know, journal articles and, and things like that. I mean, I have a curriculum that I've established for our residents where they're supposed to get through all of Cummings otolaryngology within two years. And then the other one, I think the other major otolaryngology textbook for residents is Bailey's, which I used. So it, it's just interesting that these people are still a- around, even though they're kind of seen as like the fathers of the field. So I agree. I once had a mentor in otolaryngology tell me that the hardest thing to get an otolaryngologist to do is retire. So <laughs> yeah, I believe that one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's such a great field. I mean, why would you want to leave? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So point, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about subspecialty history, right? So we now have this, as you've talked about, they established this academy and then the academy split between ophthalmology and otolaryngology. And then how did the subspecialties start to develop? Yeah, so I find it kind of interesting because it's not quite history repeating itself, but in certain ways it is because, you know, the academy was kind of birthed out of specialization and then now we have further specialization and kind of continuing to be the course. But now the ACGME accredits also fellowships beyond otolaryngology. So there are a couple of different fellowships that you can subspecialize in. And then beyond that, there are many more non-ACGME accredited, but fellowships nonetheless that people can go into as well. So some of the more popular ones are pediatrics and neurotology or skull-based surgery. Then there's also head and neck cancer, rhinology, facial plastics, and even sleep medicine. Some of these you've already talked about on the podcast, which I'll recommend to do a plug for the podcast. A plug for the podcast on the podcast. On the podcast, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the two subspecialties that are currently you can get board certification in are neurotology and sleep. 
and the others are not board certified separately from the otolaryngology boards, but they are still accredited, whether that's through the ACGME or some of them are actually accredited through the uh, subspecialty society. So like the head and neck subspecialty is accredited through the head and neck society. That makes a lot of sense and offers a lot of options to aspiring otolaryngologists. Right, exactly. So what do you think, looking at the history, right, and looking towards the future, what do you think the future of otolaryngology will bring? So I think really the biggest thing for the future of otolaryngology will likely be just continued innovation of the tools that we use, not only in surgery, but also even in the outpatient setting and different methods that we use for surveillance for otolaryngological conditions. But then on top of that, I think that will only bring better care for patients. So I think as otolaryngologists, it will only inspire us to further develop methods that make our jobs easier or y'all's jobs easier, but then also make the patient's experience one that is better overall. Yeah. And I think new technology, you know, the the most recent one that I'm thinking about is Eustachian tube balloon dilation now has a clinical guideline. So clearly that, I mean, not to date myself, but that was not (laughs) something that you did when I was in training because it wasn't really available yet. And even in the last 10 years, that's, that's now available. So yeah, I think it's a really exciting time to be in this field because there's been so many innovations just in the last 20 to 30 years, but we're poised to have so many more. Definitely think it's an exciting time. Yeah. I think it's really important that we look at the history of otolaryngology to understand where we've been and where we're going because it gives us perspective about patient care and how this has all evolved as a process to make us better clinicians and be able to provide better services for our patients. Thanks for being on the show and telling us all about this fascinating history of otolaryngology. If you want to read more about the history of otolaryngology, we're going to post the references on the show notes page. Thanks. Thanks for having me. If you like what you just heard or didn't, please go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There you will find a link to a brief survey so I can improve the quality of this podcast. I would greatly appreciate your help.